0: The scripture reading for this Easter Sunday morning is taken from Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, the verses 1 to 12. And you'll be able to find that on page 1218 of your pew Bible. 1218. Christ has been buried. He's been laid in a tomb. And the woman who had come with him from Galilee They have prepared fragrant oils and spices, and they're coming to the tomb with the intention of taking care of his body. It brings us to Luke 24. Now, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was in Galilee saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed To them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb. And stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves. And he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. So far, the word of God. Beloved congregation of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What's the foundation of your faith? If someone was to ask you what being a Christian meant, what would your response be? Would you tell them about your church membership? Would you hold up the Bible or maybe refer back to the fact that as a Christian you you try to be a good person? Or would you first of all direct them to the one in whom you believe? Would you point them back to Jesus Christ? It's my hope that the last of that list would be the case. Jesus Christ is, after all, the one on whom, the one whom the Christian faith is all about. He's always been the one whom the Christian faith is about, right from the early days of the church. It might interest you to know that the followers of Jesus Christ weren't always called Christians. We know from Acts 9 that they first called themselves followers of the way. And it was only in Antioch, Acts 11, that they labeled these followers of Jesus with the word Christian, and it seems that it was meant to be a slur. But recognizing that it summed up who they were, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, that this name pointed everybody who was introduced to them to the the Lord Jesus Christ, the church readily embraced the name. They were Christians. They were followers of Jesus Christ. They were followers of the one who had died, defeated death and sin, and who had risen again. And if people wanted to throw that in their faces, then, well, they would own that name with joy. They owned the name because for them, Jesus was real. He was history. His life had happened. His death had happened. And they had friends that knew him and spoke with him. And they had grown to love him as their Lord. But there was one thing in particular that set Christ apart in their hearts. There was one thing that made all of their uncertainties firm and sure, and that's his resurrection. It was for that reason that the event that we're celebrating today, the event of Christ's resurrection, is the one which attracts the most interest of almost all Jesus' actions throughout his time on earth. Matthew, Mark, and Luke spend significant amounts of time describing it. John has almost an entire movement in his gospel dedicated to this resurrection. Certainly the main focus of the gospels is the time leading up to his suffering and his death on the cross. And that's only natural. It focuses our attention on the fact that he came to seek and to save those who are lost, to save us from our sins. But the moment that's over, we find that they fixate on his resurrection and everything that happened after that. And it's not just the authors of the Gospels either. Peter spends time on it. Paul dedicates huge amounts of precious manuscripts to the discussion of the resurrection of Christ. The author to the letter of the Hebrews, be he Paul or someone else, grounds quite a bit of his doctrine, his teachings, on the basis of the resurrection from the dead. They all speak about this. They all speak about themselves as witnesses to this event. Why do they spend so much time on it? After all, Jesus came and he suffered and he died, and wasn't that the point of his coming to earth? The Apostle John summarizes the reason for it in his Gospel. He says, these things, in John 20, verse 31, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The resurrection is the supernatural event that confirms the supernatural origins of our dead and risen Savior and Lord. And the first witnesses to this event were the woman in our passage today. And so today we'll be looking at our passage and the event of the resurrection under the following theme. He's not here. He is risen. And we'll see, first of all, the certainty of his resurrection. And second, the benefits of new life in Christ. For those who challenge the Christian faith, they often cry out, show me the proof. I need to know before I can believe. Otherwise, your claims are useless. Well, here in our passage today is the proof. Written before us in our chapter, Luke 24. This same author, Luke, writes in his next book, The Record of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 10, verse 39 and following. We are witnesses of all the things which he both did in the land of the Jews and Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him, God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and who drank with him after he rose from the dead. The resurrection is the most well-attested fact in ancient history. And the single thing that that prevents secular historians from recognizing this is the fact that they don't believe in miracles. The appearance of someone who rises again from the dead completely wipes out the legitimacy of this event in their minds. Never mind that there's more historical proof for the resurrection of Christ than there is for Caesar's conquest of Gaul. More historical proof than Octavian's war against Cassius and Mark Antony. More proof than the existence of any of the Pharaohs. There is a resurrection in it, and that ends it for them. It doesn't seem to matter that the disciples themselves were also thrown into confusion and didn't believe at first. Verse 11 their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But then they were so persuaded by what they saw in the weeks following that they were willing to suffer terribly and to die, all telling of the same event in the same way that they based it on. And it wasn't just a small group of disciples who saw him either. For the broader picture, we can turn to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 and following. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 and following. 1 Corinthians, by the way, is one of the few letters which is almost universally accepted in the academic world, secular or not, as having been written by the Apostle Paul not too many years after the death of Christ, within the lifetime of eyewitnesses. So any argument that this history can be seen as less than acceptable, written much further down the line, can be set aside in light of that. We read there, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that he was buried. And that he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas. Then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once. Of whom the greater part remain to the present. But some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also, as, one, as by one born out of due time. This was verifiable. He was seen by well over 500 people who attested to the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. Historians almost universally agree that the people who received this letter of Paul's lived within the lifetime of those other eyewitnesses and so they would have been able to do their own fact-checking but it was never proved false hundreds of people attested to the resurrection being willing to swear on it as truth to the point of their own deaths. a few people might lie The eleven disciples, as those who have traveled with Jesus throughout his life, might even be able to hold together a lie, although that's doubtful, as even our most skilled politicians can't hold under pressure when more people get pulled into the fray. But to believe that hundreds of people could maintain a lie under the most extreme circumstances and in the face of the most hostile opposition is much more difficult. But that list of witnesses is not even the most remarkable part of it all. The most remarkable part can be found in verse 10 of our passage today, where it shows us the very first witnesses that we find. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. The very first witnesses were women. To us, that doesn't seem like anything that should be surprising. But to understand the significance of that, you need to understand the position of a woman's testimony in the ancient world. It wasn't considered as valuable at all. You don't try to write a convincing falsehood and then include the testimony of woman in the ancient world. So for Luke to write to an audience who would not be inclined to accept such a testimony would make no sense at all, unless he was describing an event that happened exactly the way that it did. At the end of the day, however, it's not all of this proof that's at the foundation of our belief at all. Although this proof is encouraging, for us. It's not the be-all and end-all. And why is that the case? Because our faith is, as the author of Hebrews puts it, the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Our faith rests on those words that we find in our theme. He is not here, but is risen. There will always be more questions that you can bring forward. If you convince someone that Jesus Christ was a historical figure, they can ask, but what about the witnesses? You bring forward the answers to that, and they can say, but what about the quality of the documents? There are answers enough for all of their questions, and 10,000 more. But for some of them, that won't be enough. We read in verse 11 of our passage today that the disciples heard the woman who testified to Jesus' resurrection and their words seemed to them like idle tales. They didn't believe. They couldn't believe. Until Christ stood before them in the flesh, it was more than they wanted to process. We know that as time went on and Jesus revealed himself to his disciples, they eventually did come to believe. But we also recognize that there were many in Israel who did not. Because then it would have, it would have implications for them. It would mean that they would need to change. Their whole worldview would be turned upside down. And they couldn't handle that. So they remained in unbelief. Despite the number of people around them who spoke about having seen Christ themselves in the flesh. Despite the testimony of The woman in our passage today, and so many others, time and time again, you can answer an atheist's questions, but if someone really doesn't want to believe, they'll find a reason not to, and there's always another reason not to believe. And so, at the end of the day, we need to recognize that we can't argue someone into the kingdom of God. Sin and Satan blind the eyes of the world so that even what's rational can't be accepted. There is only one person who can truly change their hearts. And that is God himself. Believe it. He can truly change their hearts. He did, after all, raise his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead again, did he not? Bring them again and again in prayer before God. And pray that he would change their hearts. Perhaps You're a visitor here today, and you think, I want to believe. I would like to believe, but I can't. If this is your situation today, ask God. Speak to Him. Look to the cross of Jesus Christ and what it means, and fix your eyes on it as your starting point. That is the beginning of faith. Hold on to the reality of his resurrection and what it means for the people of God and let that be your anchor because it is a historical certainty. But more than that, it's not just truth that we can put our faith in. We put our faith in the person, the person of Jesus Christ. Look to him and trust that he won't let you down, but that he'll guide you along this path. He'll guide you along this journey if you will put your trust in Him. You will find Him as you keep on turning to this, this historical event again and again and again in your time of doubt. If you keep fixing your eyes on Him, returning to the one in whom you're anchored, you can find safety. Your ship may be rocked by the waves of circumstance and the winds of doubt, but if it is anchored in Jesus Christ, you'll find that you can and will weather this storm, and you'll be steered into safe harbor. Unbelief may seem sweet for a while, but doubt turns bitter. With Christ, on the other hand, as your anchor and the cross of Calvary and the empty tomb before your eyes you will find the sweetness of certainty that nothing else can provide. Life takes on meaning. Suffering becomes a road to holiness. Joy becomes a taste of heaven. Why? There are three reasons, three benefits of new life in Christ that we can find. First, it's because through Christ's death and resurrection... Through holding on to those words, he is not here, but he is risen. We're given the certainty of peace with God. We read in Romans 4 verse 25 that Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. He made sure through his resurrection not only to overcome death for himself, but to make certain that we could share in his righteousness. Through him we are not only right with God, but God looks down and sees us as righteous. As God can look down over Gray County today and see the world covered in snow, the pure whiteness of it all, he can look down on us through Jesus Christ and see us as pure and white. Second, we read that we're raised to a new life through his resurrection. By believing in him, we are joined with him on a spiritual level. We become a part of his team, so to speak, so that what Christ has accomplished as the leader is what we are able to share in as well. That means when Christ died and was raised again, all of us spiritually died and were raised with him. A part of us, our sinful nature, was put to death and continues to be put to death. And another part of us, the part that's the new creation, is raised up to new life in him. Spiritually, we died in him and were raised to new life in him. And that has implications. We read in Colossians 3, verses 1 to 3, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. We have the opportunity to approach life in a new way, setting our minds on things above. And that comes out in putting to death and raising to life. Paul, in the same chapter of his letter to the Colossians, gives us a few examples of those kinds of things that were to put to death fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and all covetousness, which is idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth, not lying to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and you have put on the new man. Those things which we know we ought not to do, those are the things that we can put to death. Now, you may look at those things in your life and think, oh, I know that's hopeless. I'm never going to be able to accomplish that. You can almost imagine that same sense of hopelessness that the woman who came to the tomb felt as well. Everything was finished. Jesus Christ had died. For them, it seemed like this was the last little thing that they could do. Just embalm the body. In the same way, often we feel that that's the best that we can do with ourselves just embalm the body before we bury it but god through the apostle says no i have raised you up to be a new creation in my son you can put this to death and i will walk by your side in my spirit as i do so don't give up you can beat those persistent sins When you fall back again, get back up because you have the Spirit on your side, the Comforter whom Christ guaranteed would come to you through His death, resurrection, and later His ascension into heaven. When you fall, you can get back up to fight again because He will lift you up. Make war against your sinful nature because in Christ, willing to fight all your life long, you will emerge victorious. But he doesn't just leave it there. You don't just put something to death and leave a void in your life. God then gives the Colossians and us a positive image to fill the void in our lives. We read in verses 12 and following of that chapter of Colossians, therefore, as the elect, or chosen people of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against one another, even as Christ forgave you, you also must do. We're called to seek all of these things because our Lord Jesus Christ embodies them. Christ is all of these things. And so we should seek to be modeled after His image. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to write, But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you also were called in one body, and be thankful. Now notice the language that's used here. He doesn't say to take your character and to change it. No, he says put on these things. Put on these different attributes. You may say, I'm so ingrained in these habits, it's hard to kick them. My wife knows that I'm unforgiving, and so she's gotten used to putting up with it. The guys that I'm a foreman over, they know that I'm impatient or not particularly merciful, and they've gotten used to it. My kids know that when it comes to them, I'm rather prideful. I don't ever say sorry to them. And these are so ingrained as habits in my life that I'll never change. I feel hopeless. How can I put on these things that Paul speaks of? Well then, here you'll find hope as well. Yes, you're weak and you slide back, but you don't remain there. Why? Because Christ has arisen. Being joined with Christ, we too are raised up to a new life. Christ's rising has a transforming effect on you. In Him you can put off those things, and you can put on these new qualities of the will. Basically, this means in Christ you can change. Even as old and ingrained as your habits are, even if if it feels like it's a corpse that needs to be put to rest, there is hope. You can change. But how is it possible, you may ask? Well, the key can be found in those two words, put on. There are two simple little words in English and one simple little word in Greek. In Greek, we find this exact same word in Romans 13, verse 14, where we read, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and these new attributes will begin to become a reality for you. It's not you changing your own nature. It's you putting on Christ's nature. It's you being buried with Christ and being raised to newness of life with Him. Christ's resurrection has this transforming effect. And if this resurrection becomes a reality for you, if you see that the divine work of God can raise Jesus Christ from the dead, That coming to the tomb, you can see the empty tomb. Then that changes things. You can see with the woman who came to the empty tomb that when they saw it and they heard the words of the angels, they were filled with new hope. They came there with heavy and broken hearts. They came there with deep sadness because they themselves felt like there was nothing you could do except put the body to rest and balm and leave it at that. But they came and they saw the empty tomb. They saw the stone rolled away and they were able to leave, running back to the other apostles to tell them the truth of what they did, of what they saw. It didn't just transform their hearts. It didn't just grant them new hope, but it allowed them to completely change their direction. Instead of moving in sadness towards death, they ran with joy to proclaim the newness of life. So what does that mean? Does putting on Christ mean that I try harder? Do I change myself? Certainly not. If you rely on yourself alone, outside of Christ, you're dead. And what does our passage of today say about that? Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen. Luke 24, verses 5 and 6. No, you turn your focus outside of yourself and fix your eyes on Christ. Christians in the time of the early church were able to hold on to their faith even in the most terrible times because they or people they knew had seen Christ. They had confirmed that He had died for them and that He was raised for them. They had certainty. This gave them the ability to stand firm because they found their hope outside of themselves. Christ being raised from the dead to a new life was living proof that in him the same could be true for them and the same can be true for us today. Keep coming to him in prayer. Keep coming to him in prayer. Keep confessing your sins to him. Keep looking to the promise that he grants us through his sacrifice on the cross that all is forgiven in him. And keep looking to His resurrection as a reminder that in Him, you can have a new life. And finally, the third benefit that we can receive because of Christ's resurrection is the assurance that not only will we begin to taste new life here on this earth, but we have a sure promise in Him that we ourselves will be raised up as well. With new bodies, perfected, holy, righteous, blameless and pure. As Paul writes in Romans 8 verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The woman came to the cross, came to the tomb. The woman came to the tomb and they saw an empty tomb. This was just a foretaste of what was coming. A foretaste of that final day when every tomb, when every gravesite will be empty. The sea will give up its dead. Everywhere where people have died, they'll be raised up to newness of life. Because of him, we have peace with God. We're raised up to a new life already here beginning on earth and we have hope of a future resurrection. Beloved, in light of the beautiful blessings that we get because of Christ's resurrection, let's raise our voices in worship now, here today. Let's marvel at the resurrection of Christ with all that it means and all that it brings and let's eagerly await for the return of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For because of His victory, The inheritance in store for us is free from all decay and cannot spoil or be defiled. It will not fade away. It's safely kept in heaven for us whom God's own power will shield till full salvation is at last on his great day revealed. Amen.